0: most of these stories have something to do with jesus's follower named peter and here in this passage once again we're going to learn something important about jesus and something important about what it means to follow jesus but here in this passage what's really unique is this combination of death and taxes In 1789, the year of, the year that our American Constitution was born, we might say, Benjamin Franklin wrote in a personal letter, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except what? There it is. That quote memorably links these two ideas of death and taxes as unending tyrants. And while most of us would recognize that death is worse than taxation, I think Benjamin Franklin understood that as well, there's a certain logic to the coupling of death and taxes, because both of them have been dreaded by people for ages. And taxation is a complex thing, right? On the one hand, taxation can be used for the common good. On the other hand, taxation can also easily become a tool for oppression. In other words, taxes can be something that the Lord uses to provide for people throughout a society. And on the other hand taxes might be used by those who are powerful or wealthy in order to increase and maintain their own wealth and power over others. The Bible recognizes this oppressive potential of taxation in examples and warnings alike. And so... While taxation can be used for the common good, it can also be a tool for oppression. And recognizing that, we see why this question is so interesting in Matthew chapter 17 verse 24. Doesn't your teacher pay taxes? Does Jesus pay his taxes? Let me take a moment and set the stage for this question in its original context before we dig in and pay attention to some lessons that we can learn from it. The location of this question is in Peter's hometown, Capernaum in Galilee. And probably because it's Peter's hometown, maybe because Jesus is staying in Peter's home. Someone stops by to ask a question, not directly to Jesus, but to Peter about Jesus. Won't Jesus be paying his two drachma tax this year? This half shekel tax or this two drachma tax is a specific kind of tax. People in Peter's day paid multiple layers of taxes, somewhat like somewhat like how we pay taxes in America, maybe to the IRS and to Springfield and in my case, to the city of Aurora and so forth. In Matthew 22, later in Matthew's gospel, we'll read the famous moment when Jesus interacts with the issue of what about taxes due to Rome? Jesus will famously say in that passage, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But here in Matthew 17, Jesus' teaching has to do with a different layer of taxes. Taxes due not to Rome, taxes due to Jerusalem. With very few exceptions, every Jewish male was expected to pay a per capita two drachma tax to Jerusalem. And this tax, like many taxes, had its complexities to it. Viewed from the most positive kind of lens, this two drachma tax paid for the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. This tax funded worship. And festivals and even sacrifices made in Jerusalem. In some people's minds, this tax might have been tied to the direction in Exodus chapter 30 for Jewish people to pool their resources in order to fund the building of the original tabernacle in the wilderness. So from the most positive kind of perspective, you could say that this was a tax for the sake of the temple, for the sake of worship, for the sake of sacrifices, all based on a biblical principle. Well, that's nice. Viewed from a more skeptical lens, however, some might have pointed out that the leaders in Jerusalem collected massive amounts of money in this way. Much more than they needed for festivals and worship and sacrifices. Historians today tell us that the Jerusalem leaders had such excess of income that they simply added more and more ornate golden things around the temple architecture using these resources and the excess of them every year for that purpose. And as far as Exodus 30 goes, the tax in Exodus 30 was a one-time contribution in order to set up the tabernacle. Nothing in Exodus 30 suggests that it was supposed to become an annual half-shekel tax forevermore. So, as you can imagine, there was room for debates about the legitimacy of this tax paid to Jerusalem. And now this fellow who collects this special tax for Jerusalem shows up at Peter's door. Knock, knock, knock. Won't Jesus be paying his two drachma tax this year? Apparently some of the disciples are gathered around at this moment. You can imagine the special interest in this question that would have immediately been piqued. In the minds of a couple of Jesus' followers, you remember that among the first 12 followers of Jesus were both Matthew and Simon. Matthew, who had been, before following Jesus, a collector of taxes. This was his occupation. This was his thing that he left Jesus in order to follow. And Simon the zealot, you know who zealots are? They're the people who will start riots rather than pay taxes. So you've got Matthew who collects taxes. You've got Simon who used to start riots against taxes. Both of them learning what it means to follow Jesus. And now comes the knock at the door. Won't Jesus be paying his taxes? And you can imagine Matthew, the author of this gospel, taking out his pen and paper saying, I'm going to need to mark down what happens in this moment. This is an interesting question. Will Jesus pay his taxes? Peter goes ahead and answers, yes. He pays his taxes. And then Peter goes inside and Jesus says, yeah, we should talk a little bit more about that. Which is not Jesus's way of saying, no, I don't pay taxes. But it is Jesus's way of saying, yes, I pay taxes, but not in the way that everybody else around us pays them. You're right, Peter, that is what I do, but there needs to be some clarification about why I do that. And so we end up with this interesting little interchange in which we learn three things. Three things about how Jesus interacts with taxes. Three things that we should understand not only about Jesus, But also, three things that will shine a light on what it means to follow Jesus as his followers today. Jesus explains his approach to taxes, and maybe we can break it apart into three sections of his answer. The first is this, we learn that in Jesus' approach to his taxes, he pays freely as an heir of the kingdom. Look with me again, if you would, at Matthew 17, and we'll pick up toward the end of, or or we'll pick up, yeah, in the middle of 25, Peter answers the question, yes, Jesus pays his taxes, he comes into the house, and Jesus spoke to him first, saying, well, let me ask you a question, Simon. From whom do kings of the earth take toll or taxes? Do they take taxes from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus and Peter understands the sense of it from others. Now, we need to pause there for just one second because in our modern world of democratic monarchies, such as in Great Britain, uh, some of these rules might work a little bit differently, although if you dig in, maybe you find it's only a little bit differently. Uh, but some of these rules work a little differently in today's world than they have in many cultures across the ages. But it was so obvious in Jesus' day what the answer was. If there is somebody who is a king, a person of wealth and power and influence... Will that king who is accumulating wealth and power and influence, will he charge taxes to his own son to whom he is planning to give the whole kingdom eventually anyway? And the answer in Peter's day was quite obvious. No. The sons are free from paying taxes. The sons are going to inherit the whole kingdom anyway. Why should they have to pay into this system that they're one day going to inherit? The answer was obvious to Peter. As he says in verse 26, the kings of the earth take toll. They take taxes not from the sons, but from others. And then Jesus says to him, then the sons are free. Jesus uses this little teaching as a way to explain that while he does pay his taxes, he does not pay his taxes like everybody else does. He pays his taxes as one who is free because he is the son, the heir of the entire kingdom. Why would he be expected to pay into the system that he's inheriting the whole thing from anyway? So yes, Jesus pays taxes, but he pays them freely. I wonder how you pay your taxes. Many of our neighbors feel a certain kind of resentment toward their taxes. Why? Because wherever the love of money rules, we will resent whatever leads us to lose our wealth. Some of our neighbors hate taxation because they've seen the way that it can burn the poor and multiply injustice. Some of our neighbors plug their nose, so to speak, and take a deep breath and say, I hate taxes, but I'll do it anyway because it's better than the consequences of getting caught for not doing it. But most of us, if we're honest, why do we pay our taxes? Because we have to. Isn't that the answer that most of us and most of our neighbors would give? Most of us don't give a whole lot of thought to how or why we pay our taxes. It's just what you got to do. If we did a survey of our neighbors, if we did a survey of those in this room, we said, why do you pay your taxes? Wouldn't the most common answer be, I pay them because I have to. And here comes Jesus with a totally unique perspective. He says, actually, I don't have to. I'm not paying these taxes because I'm stuck in a system that I can't get out of. I'm free. One day, I will inherit everything that the temple and Jerusalem points to. It's all mine anyway. I'm free of the obligation. And yet and yet I pay anyway. Isn't that interesting how that works for Jesus? And then perhaps even more interesting is the fact that as Jesus explains his reasoning about freedom, he includes his followers in that freedom as well. Do you notice that in verse at the end of verse 26? From whom do the kings of earth take toll or taxes from their sons or from others? Jesus has framed this story in such a way that it speaks not only to the privilege of one son to be exempt from the slavish burden of taxation, but it frees many heirs from a slavish burden to taxation. And so along with Jesus... Jesus is suggesting for Peter, for Matthew, the former tax collector, for Simon, the former zealot, for disciples of Jesus like us today. Jesus is saying, just as I am free from a slavish burden to pay my taxes, so you also may count yourselves free from that slavish burden to pay taxes merely because you have to. You too are included in this freedom. What then should we do with it? Well, here's how Peter understood what we should do with this kind of freedom. Years later, writing to a, writing to disciples like us, followers of Jesus like us, Peter would explain it like this. He would say, 1 Peter 2.16, live As people who are free. But not using your freedom as a cover up for evil. But living as servants of God. And you say, does that really apply to things like taxes? The context says, yes. The paragraph as a whole goes like this. First Peter two, beginning in verse 13, be subject to the Lord's for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And then you can almost hear this acknowledgement at the end. And yes, also honor the emperor. So when it comes to the ethics of paying taxes... I want to suggest to you that our posture as Christians ought to be similar to the posture of Jesus. Do the followers of Jesus pay taxes? Yes. But that requires a little bit of an asterisk. We don't just pay them like everybody else out of a mere slavish obligation. We pay our taxes out of freedom out of understanding our true identity as fellow heirs together with Jesus of everything that Jerusalem represents. Fellow heirs in the grace of life. And as people who are free, yes, we pay our taxes, but not in the same way as other people. Not out of the same kind of slavish devotion. We do it as those who understand we're free. You know, a while ago there was that, um, that TV show, Undercover Boss. You know what I'm talking about? And what made that whole TV show work, it was this show where kind of a new employee would be added and there would be cameras, secret cameras all around the warehouse And a new employee would come into the warehouse or come into some low-ranking kind of job. And you would see this new employee treated just like all the other employees in the business. With all the burdens and all the grunt work and all of the aches and pains that go with being the lowest-ranking person in the entire organization. But what made this show interesting was the secret knowledge you would have as a viewer knowing that this new employee was, in fact, the CEO of the entire organization, just dressed in street clothes instead of a suit. And sometimes you might see the CEO of an organization mopping a floor, scrubbing windows, getting yelled at by a shift supervisor, bearing with these injustices, if you will, bearing with the aches and pains, very often with a certain kind of Enduring smirk in the corner of their mouth. Why? Because the CEO knows I can endure this stuff for a couple of weeks. I own the whole place anyway. And in the same way, or in a similar way, here we see Jesus submitting himself willingly and freely. You want another half shekel? Here you go. Why? Because he knows he's the son of the king. He's the heir of the entire kingdom. What's a shekel anyway? When you own the whole place. And we too as Christians by, how does Peter get to be one of the heirs? How does Peter get to be one of the sons? All by grace. You know how you get to be one of the sons? You know how you get to be one of the heirs? All by grace. And by being united with Jesus, we begin to learn and even experience alongside of Jesus this kind of freedom to willingly submit ourselves even to what feels burdensome at times, losing a few thousand dollars to the IRS and more money to Springfield and more money to Aurora, but we can do so the whole time with a certain smirk in the corner of our face. A smile. That is different than the way any of our neighbors pay their taxes. Why? Because we know that together with Jesus we're heirs of the entire kingdom. What's a few thousand dollars anyway? Here's the first thing we learn about how Jesus pays his taxes. He pays freely as an heir of the kingdom. And he invites us in as fellow heirs along with him. To pay freely as well. A second thing we notice here is that Jesus not only pays freely, He also pays wisely. Or we might say strategically or missionally. He pays wisely in order to protect the integrity of the mission. Notice Jesus' reasoning as it unfolds in verse 27. Jesus has just said, the sons are free. Verse 27. However, so as not to give offense to them. Go to the sea, cast a hook, when the fish comes up, open its mouth, get the shekel, take that and give it to them for me. He pays wisely to protect the integrity of the mission. The word offense in this passage is the word from which we get the English word scandal. It's a scandal on. And he says. "I." Peter has just said yes Jesus pays taxes. Jesus says we should put an asterisk by that. I pay freely. Not as somebody who is under some slavish obligation. But part of why I pay. Is so as to Not create a scandal where there doesn't need to be a scandal. Do you see? So as not to create an offense where there doesn't need to be an offense. Why do I add that bit about where there doesn't need to be a scandal or where there doesn't need to be offense? Because the rest of the New Testament understands very clearly that there is something about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of proclaiming freedom in his name, that is inherently scandalous. There's something about the message of a crucified Messiah that will lead some people to say that's not how it works. There are some necessary components of the gospel of Jesus Christ that will offend some people. When we explain clearly that Jesus Christ came into this world to give his life as a ransom for our sins. And that he rose again in new life and now the message goes out, repent. Turn from the way you're living and begin following Jesus. There's something that's necessarily scandalous about that. Something that will be an offense to some. But as much as possible, we might say, Jesus is not in the business of creating scandal for scandal's sake. In fact, as far as Jesus is concerned, when it's possible it's preferable to not create a scandal. Agreed? When it's possible, it is preferable to not give offense in the culture and the moment that we live in now. Peter understood both elements of this very clearly. When he wrote to Christians years later in 1st Peter chapter 2, he explains that to us, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, the risen Lord who gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins and is now risen from the grave in triumph over sin and death. Jesus Christ to us is the cornerstone of everything It's the foundation on which everything else good will ever be built. Peter also points out in 1 Peter chapter 2, while to us we see Jesus as the foundational cornerstone of everything good, to some, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, it's a stumbling block. It's an offense. It's a scandal. Same word group that's used in Matthew 17. So what should Christians do about that? If there's something inherently scandalous... About who Jesus is. And how he brings us into salvation. And then there are these other issues. Like taxes. What should Christians do about it? Here's how Peter. Talks. To Christians. In 1st Peter chapter 2 verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you. As evildoers. And notice. Peter's first hand experience as a follower of Jesus has taught him that he needs to say things like this. Sometimes people will speak evil of you as a Christian. They will speak against you and pretend as if you're the evildoer. Peter knows from first person personal experience this will happen. But he says Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, so there may not be an unnecessary offense, so that there may not be an unnecessary scandal, why? That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He goes on in a similar vein in First Peter 3: "Have no fear. Does you don't need to pay your taxes merely out of fear? Christian, I wonder if you have realized that your life can become a stumbling block for other people coming to Jesus. There's something rightly sobering about that, isn't there? When you begin to realize that the way you conduct yourself could create a scandal, an offense that would keep people from the necessary offense of the message of Jesus, there should be something about this that kind of wakes us up a little bit, kind of calms us down a little bit, kind of opens our eyes a little bit. To say maybe the way I live my life matters. I'm free but I can't just use my freedoms to serve my ends. I'm free but I can't just use my freedoms to increase my wealth. I'm free but I can't use my freedom as a cover up for evil. I'm free but that doesn't mean I just do whatever I feel like whenever I feel like regardless of how other people would understand it. I'm free, but if I'm not careful, my life might become a stumbling block keeping other people from coming to Jesus. And so whether it's the issue of taxes or the issue of sexual ethics or the issue of personal integrity and communication with other people, Or the issue of gentleness and kindness in an age of hostility. Christian brothers and sisters, we need to watch our conduct, not only because it's the right thing to do before God. But also because we need to keep our conduct in the world honorable. So that when others speak against us as evildoers, they may see the truth about our good deeds. And so glorify God on the day of visitation. There's something rightly sobering here about Jesus's reasoning. Something that reminds us that our lives need to be lived with integrity for the sake of the mission. Jesus pays his taxes, yes, but he doesn't do it the way everybody else does it. He does so freely. He does so wisely. And he also does so generously, we might say. He does so generously to provide for his disciple. This is the fun surprise of this passage in verse 27, isn't it? However, not to give offense to them. Pay attention to this. Go to the sea and cast a hook. Okay, now normally Peter did fishing with nets. Why? Because you can catch a lot more fish with nets. But here's where the miraculous part of this miracle comes in. Jesus says, I don't need a net full of fish to get this job done. All I need is one hook. Take one hook, toss it in the water, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Do you know how many half shekels are in a shekel? This is a half-shekel tax. Jesus says, Peter, here's how we're going to pay it. I want you to go, and I'm going to provide for you through going and doing your fishing kind of stuff, and you're going to get enough not only for me, but also to pay for you. You're going to get enough not only to cover me, but enough to cover us. Jesus pays generously to provide for his disciple. And here's where the connection. With the Jerusalem tax. Gets wings. <laughs> and begins to shine. This reasoning is a little different. Than the reasoning that Jesus gives. When he talks about paying taxes. To Rome. And I think there's something strategic about it. Why does Jesus talk. About paying for me and for you, when he talks about paying for the expenses of the temple, and the worship, and the sacrifices there in Jerusalem, because this is the greater mission that he is on—the mission which is met, which is explicitly. Described in verses 22 and 23, Jesus is on a greater mission, not only to teach about how to pay your taxes. He's on a far greater mission to go to Jerusalem where he will be delivered into the hands of men and he will be killed. And then he will rise again on the third day. Day. There is a greater mission at play here in which Jesus came not just to cover financial taxes, He came to give His life to pay for us. To pay for many. You see, in something that is beautifully portrayed here, I think Jesus wants us to see that he came to deal with taxes and death. Whatever tyranny there is bound up in death and taxes, Jesus came to set us free from it all. And he comes to set us free from all of that tyranny. Perhaps we would even say in a similar way. Because in both cases, how does he defeat the tyranny? In both cases, he defeats the tyranny by willingly submitting himself to its temporary tyranny. Not because he has no power ultimately over taxes. Not because he has no power ultimately over death. But he willingly submits himself to their temporary tyranny in only in order to defeat them ultimately for us. And what does that mean? It doesn't mean that Christians no longer have to experience death. Christians do die. But Christians don't need to live in the fear of death. Christians don't need to live in the dread of death. Christians don't need to live in the slavery that the rest of the world lives in, feeling like death is the end of everything. Why? Because we know that even if we experience death, yet shall we live. We know that death's days are numbered. And in a similar way, Christ is paying his disciples taxes. And he's leading us in a path of paying our own taxes. Because Christ paying his disciples tax does not mean that Peter will never experience taxation again. But it does carry the promise that Peter no longer needs to live in the fear or the dread or the slavery to taxation that he's always lived in and everyone else around him. Because it carries the promise That taxation's days are numbered. Peter, like disciples like you and me today, may continue to experience taxation just like we continue to experience death. But listen to me, we live as those who understand we are free. Because Jesus willingly submitted himself to every one of our griefs and sorrows. Not only to share in them with us, but to overcome them for us. And to assure us that their day is numbered. You know that beautiful line that we sing every Christmas? In his name, all oppression shall cease. It's true. To whatever degree there is something burdensome or oppressive about taxation, its days are numbered. It will not reign forever. Because with Christ, we look forward to inheriting a world that will one day be free from all tyranny, all oppression, all evil, all financial stresses and burdens. One day, we will inherit a world of true and unending freedom. And in his subversive victory through patient submission, Christ has established himself as the king over all kings, the Lord over all lords. Therefore, death and taxes will in his kingdom one day cease and of the triumphant increase of his government of grace, there will be no end. Take that coin. And give it to them for me and for yourself. I'm paying for us, Jesus says. I came to pay for us. You See, here is the core of what the core of the beauty of what this passage shows us. This passage does teach us some things that are helpful for Christian ethics, how we think about taxes in a broken world and things like that. It's helpful for that. But you know what this passage shows us in all of its beauty and all of its glory and all of its wonder? It shows us that he came to pay for us. And it leaves us not just thinking about how we're going to sign our checks or when we're going to send them it leaves us bowing our knees in humble gratefulness and in hopeful wonder before the king who came and willingly submitted himself to it all in order to conquer for us all it leaves us bowed in humble submission and hopeful wonder before the king Who came to pay for us. Praise his name. At this time I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.